Hello and welcome to UN Catch-Up, Dateline Geneva, your weekly review of international news from the United Nations. I'm Daniel Johnson and in today's headlines, Myanmar in the spotlight with condemnation for the military takeover from UN Chief Antonio Guterres, a guilty verdict for a former Ugandan warlord at the International Criminal Court, and a welcome announcement that frontline health workers in nearly 150 developing countries should get a COVID-19 vaccine by June. We'll also be hearing from regular guests Solange Bejotegui-Cortez and Alpha Diallo from the Information Service at UN Geneva. But first, the work of the UN and its partners never stops to prevent human traffickers from exploiting desperate people in West and Central Africa as they embark on dangerous journeys across the Sahara Desert in search of opportunities further north and in Europe. To explain what is being done to tackle smuggling gangs, I spoke to Vincent Cochetel. He's the UN Refugee Agency's special envoy for the Central Mediterranean situation. Of concern to us are refugees who have already found protection in the country normally neighboring their country of origin. But because of the measures relating to COVID, many have lost their job, lost some time their shelter, and some may consider moving onward to try to find better protection elsewhere. One thing I know that people might be keen to find out about is how COVID has affected or impacted on migration, because what's clear from the report that you released is that human smugglers, human traffickers, they haven't had any trouble in going around the restrictions, have they? No, absolutely. It's a market opportunity for smugglers and traffickers. They diversify their offer, try to make it sound more attractive for desperate people to embark on those journeys. And in order to circumvent border closure, in particular land border closure, they take higher risk. And some of the people, unfortunately, got trapped in those journeys. Could you maybe tell me some real-life stories that are featured in your report from the UN Refugee Agency? There was one that really struck me, a Somali boy who was travelling unaccompanied from Somalia to Ethiopia, to Sudan, and then to Libya, then ultimately to Malta. Absolutely. And we get to hear people like that. They don't stop at the first country of asylum because either the conditions are not there, either because they were confronted to an incident in the first place they arrive and they feel it's not safe, either sometimes it's because the traffickers have lied to them and told them, well, we have a job lined up for you in Libya. We'll make you cross through uh, Europe. And those people don't realize that even before reaching Libya, they're going to get into trouble while crossing through other countries because the so-called gentle smugglers actually turn very quickly nasty traffickers. Yeah, let's just back that up with some data. I know your report says more than 500 people died trying to cross the sea from Libya in 2020, often on overcrowded inflatable boats. So what is the UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency, trying to do with uh, local governments? Well, with local governments, we try to tell them to combat trafficking actively because there are too many non-human traffickers that have never been brought to justice, and that applies to many coastal states. But we're trying to work also with communities to tell them to offer another alternative, that there might be other solutions on the way. It's too late when the people reach Libya or reach the Western Sahara territory because it's going to be too tempting for people to go on those boats and believe what the traffickers are telling them. Could you tell me about some of your community initiatives. There's one that you call Telling the Real Story that tries to prevent smuggling and trafficking. 
Exactly. That's targeting Eastern Africa, uh, mainly Eritreans and Somali. We have mobilized diaspora in Europe and elsewhere to let the people tell their story, what happened to them. So it's unfiltered. These are videos, these are chat forums where people talk to people in their language and tell them exactly what has happened to them to try to demystify and debunk the narrative of the traffickers. Where's your focus at the moment? Because Libya has been in turmoil for so long and it was such a pull for migrants. But we hear that Burkina Faso has a really growing displacement crisis too. Yes, there's been a significant increase in displacement in the Western Sahelian countries. I mean, almost 3 million people displaced because of the conflict. Not that many people leave the region, mainly Malians, few citizens from Burkina Faso, but many stay at home. Those displaced in Niger stay in Niger. They don't embark on those dangerous journeys. So that's one area of focus, Western Sahel. The other one is the crisis linked to what has happened in Tigray recently over the last two months on the displacement it has caused within Ethiopia and in Sudan. Can you tell me about some of the solutions for placing people who need international protection with their families? I'm talking about family reunification. There are some pilot projects that you've launched with Egypt, Sudan and others. Yes, we try to look again at the narrative of many states saying, you know, But legal pathways exist. People need to use them rather than to embark on those dangerous journeys. And we realize that in reality, those legal pathways are extremely difficult to access. If you are a refugee in a camp in eastern Sudan, you may not get the permission to leave the camp, to go to the capital city where, you know, the embassy of the country where you have relatives may not be open or may not exist at all. So what we try is facilitate access to the documentation and simplify procedure for people. Could we quickly go back to that unaccompanied Somali lad? Do you know what happened to him? He ended up in Malta in the end, didn't he? Yes, he did. Yeah. I don't know what happened to him afterwards, but the majority of those unaccompanied children from Somalia, depending where they come from, they will get a protective status in Europe in principle. Vanson Koshtel from the UN High Commissioner for Refugees there. Thanks to him. You can hear the full interview on UN News forward slash audio hub. Now, the news. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres has said that the UN would work to mobilize the international community to reverse the military takeover in Myanmar. In his comments made during an online discussion hosted by the Washington Post on Wednesday, Mr Guterres said that it was absolutely unacceptable to reverse the result of national elections and the will of the people. I hope that democracy will be able to make progress again in Myanmar, the UN chief continued, in a call for all prisoners to be released, including the country's elected leader, Aung San Suu Kyi, and President Win Mint. On Thursday, the UN Security Council issued a statement expressing deep concern over the developments in Myanmar. The 15-member body emphasised the need for the continued support of the democratic transition inside the country after a military junta was installed on Monday, ending five years of civilian rule. On Wednesday, Ms. Suu Kyi was charged with the illegal possession of walkie-talkies, allegedly imported illegally, and remanded in custody. A former Ugandan warlord whose forces attacked camps for the internally displaced has been found guilty of war crimes and crimes against humanity at the International Criminal Court, judges ruled on Thursday. The court, based in the Netherlands, found that Dominic Ongwen led multiple grave violations in the north of the country in the early 2000s as part of a long-standing armed insurgency dating back to the 1980s. As a brigade commander of the Lord's Resistance Army, LRA, 
Mr. Ongwin sanctioned murder of large numbers of civilians, forced marriage, sexual slavery and the recruitment of child soldiers to participate actively in hostilities, among other grave crimes, the court heard. Attacks against civilians were justified by the reasoning that they were associated with the government and were therefore the enemy of the insurgents. Here's presiding judge Bertram Schmidt reading the verdict. The killing of civilians was not confined to Odek IDP campsite. Some civilians abducted from the camp were killed when they struggled or tried to escape. LRA fighters killed a young abductee because his feet were too swollen and he was unable to walk any further. Although the court noted that Mr Ongwin suffered greatly after being abducted by the LRA as a nine-year-old child, it noted that he was being put on trial for crimes committed as a fully responsible adult and as a commander of the LRA in his late to mid-twenties. A new international bid to vaccinate 500 million people against COVID-19 has been announced for poorer countries. In a bid to stop potentially deadly coronavirus mutations from developing in unvaccinated pockets of the world, the $110 million initiative, led by the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies, or IFRC, comes as the organisation noted that nearly 70% of vaccine doses administered so far have been in the world's 50 wealthiest countries. Only 0.1% of vaccines have been administered in the 50 poorest countries. In a related development, the UN World Health Organisation announced on Wednesday that key workers and other vulnerable people in 145 countries should receive COVID-19 vaccines in the first half of this year. 1.2 million doses of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, which requires ultra-cold chain storage, are to be delivered to 18 countries in the first quarter of the year, out of an agreed total of 40 million. An additional 336 million doses of the AstraZeneca Oxford jab are to be lined up for dispatch to nearly all countries that have signed up to the COVAX scheme from Afghanistan to Zimbabwe, once it's been approved for use by the UN Health Agency. This week's headlines there, and before that, Vincent Kochtel from the UN Refugee Agency on the work being done to offer alternatives to people taking dangerous routes through the Sahara Desert towards northern Africa and the Mediterranean Sea. Let's wrap up this show then, this UN Catch-Up podcast, with our regular guests Solange Berthege cortez and Alpha Diallo from the Information Service at UN Geneva. Hello, bonjour and hola, Alpha and Solange. Hola, Daniel. Hola, Alpha. Bonjour, Solange. Bonjour, Dan. Good morning to you first, then, Alpha. You listened to the interview with Vincent Cochetel there. It's something we've covered a lot over the years, but did you pick up any new angles? Yes, Dan. I was struck by the story of an unaccompanied Somali boy who finally arrived in Malta. But it was a long journey for him before he made it to Europe. Remember, from Somalia, he traveled to Ethiopia, then to Sudan. Then he found some smugglers to take him from Sudan to Libya via the desert. He spent only six days in the desert, but some people spent much more time there. One month is not uncommon. Of course, if this young Somali boy's journey is a miracle, it's not the case for everyone. At least 1,000 people died or went missing while trying to cross the Mediterranean Sea from West and North Africa to Italy, Malta and Spain last year. Yes, I certainly found it hard to read the stories of survivors from these shipwrecks in the Mediterranean Sea and indeed from the refugees and migrants who've witnessed brutality and abuse on their journeys. Right. On the main danger people face, Vincent Kostel says, is extortion by so-called gentle smugglers who very quickly become aggressive traffickers. 
the UN Refugee Agency team has also heard from many women that they have been raped several times. Even so, they make up just 8% of Zoos reaching Italy, Malta, and Spain. Add to this labor exploitation that goes on, and it's clear that, as Vincent says, action is needed to help migrants and refugees find a better life in transit countries rather than being abandoned in desert without food or water. That reminds me of something that one traveller told the refugee agency. He said that he was too scared of being shot to ask passing truck drivers for water in the desert. There are so many weapons readily available in North Africa and the Sahel, mainly from the fallout of Libya's civil war. And just quickly on that, as we record this on Friday, delegates representing all Libyans who've been meeting just outside Geneva were preparing for a UN-led vote for an interim prime minister and presidency council. Their task, as veteran UN negotiator Stephanie Williams said earlier this week, is to take Libya towards the sacred goal of national elections on the 24th of December. Solange, what did you make of what the UN Refugee Agency is trying to do? Yeah, while I was listening to your interview, Daniel, I imagined a boat, but the boat is broken and we see a man taken away by the current, a woman with two children in her arms drowning, a beaten man, a dry mouth, an empty stomach, a violated body. How bad would things have to be before he, she puts his or her family in that boat? And to think that he or she felt lucky to get a place on that boat. Who are these people? Eduardo Galeano, the Uruguayan writer, gave us the answer in a great poem. They are the nobodies, nobody's children, owners of nothing, the nobodies, the no ones. The United Nations can help to change the narrative. As Vincent Cochetel said, the Telling the Real Story initiative is fighting misinformation by sharing the truth about the dangerous journeys. In the last two years, the project reached 250,000 people through direct face-to-face engagement and an additional 1 million through radio shows and another 15 million through social media. And there are results. For example, in Somalia, thanks to the counter-narrative and engagement of parents and neighbors, smugglers have found it more difficult to pitch their promises of a brighter future to children who don't know any better. A good narrative can generate change. We need to tell real stories. Describe the real boat. I like that idea of the story being the engine for positive change. Thank you, Solange, on that more upbeat note. And I think we certainly need it in this story of what is misery for many tens of thousands of people trying to seek safety and shelter and a better life. Thank you, Alpha, then, and thank you, Solange. We're out of time again, and we really must wrap this up. So our thanks to you two listeners. We hope that you've enjoyed this week's Catch-Up Dateline Geneva with me, Daniel Johnson. Maybe you'll share this with your friends and even distant acquaintances. We're not fussy. A final word of gratitude to Justine Bryce in the post-production booth, and we're done. Have a good week, look after yourselves, and see you next time. (music) 